it's funny being a lawyer. You know, it's like being a doctor. Everybody's telling you their innermost secrets. Oh, God. You have to be discreet. Oh, God, yeah. Are you? Am I what? Discreet. Yes, I'm discreet. Me too. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. And where's your wife? Where's my wife? My wife is in the country with uh, her parents visiting me on the weekend. And you're here with a strange girl being a naughty boy? I don't think having dinner with anybody is a crime. Not yet. Today, as part of our Rerotica series, we'll be discussing... Fatal Attraction Starring Michael Douglas I'm sorry I thought you understood If I misled you in some way I apologize I don't think it's a good idea If we talk to each other anymore Okay Glenn Close I just want to be a part of your life Oh this is the way you do it huh Showing up at my appointment What am I supposed to do You won't answer my calls You change your number I mean I'm not going to be ignored Dan And Anne Archer This is Beth if you ever come near my family again, I'll kill you, you understand? Directed by Adrian Lyme. I don't know what you're up to, but I'm going to tell you it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. My responsibilities! Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I won't be ignored, Dan. It's Gally in Glasgow. Ah, oh, don't you ever pity me, you smug bastard. It's Devlin in London. Are you feeling energetic? It's Patrick in Cardiff. I feel you. I taste you. I think you. It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> oh, that is, that is really <laughs> quite disturbing. Let's say uh, Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, welcome back, listeners. And, uh, and yeah, welcome back me, I guess. Um, today. Welcome back me. <laughs> We're supposed to welcome you back. <laughs> Were you concerned that nobody would? Uh, <laughs> welcome back, listeners. So we're going to continue our journey into the our Rerotica series, exploring those sexual awakenings of our younger years. And it's my choice. It's Adrian Lyons' 1987 smash hit, Fatal Attraction. So, guys, what's our history with this one? Uh, I've got... Um, it was quite a hard one to pinpoint uh, as far as when I first saw it, but the bunny boiling scene is so renowned in cinema. It's become truly iconic, so that was always kind of there in my consciousness. Uh, I do remember the sex scene with Douglas and Close on the sink with the water and the splashing and all that business. <laughs> but... Uh, Honestly, I was always more attracted to Basic Instinct as one of those uh, naughty films, as Dev uh, described uh, on on the Basic Instinct pod, um, because of Sharon Stone, I think. Poor Glenn Close, neither then nor now, was on my sexual radar, I don't think. But um, <laughs> I, I, I do remember seeing Fatal Attraction <laughs> sometime before 2007 because I wanted to steal the kettle boiling for the climax of... Uh, Climax. Not the climax, but th- there was <laughs> there was a scene in the wilds that uh, Chris and uh, Gally worked on, uh, where uh, the farmer is saying goodbye to his wife, and he's about to go out and, and find his kid, or try and find his kid. And I wanted a kettle to be boiling to kind of add some um, 
suspense and uh, and we forgot to grab the insert and it was one of those things I regretted so we couldn't get it and we got thrown out of the location um that so, was yeah. probably my job there as the first ad sorry about that no i think yeah. we took too long on, on the dialogue we didn't have time to grab it but um and then recently i saw some clips from the film on gogglebox uh, and it was really interesting to see how people reacted to it now and uh, that unkillable glenn close coming back like the terminator was really still very frightening to people and uh, the slashing at her thigh in the final scenes uh, through the nightgown was kind of raising gasps from from people. So I've probably seen it two or three times all the way through, but uh, including clip shows and documentaries and TV countdowns and all this stuff, uh, it probably adds up to maybe 10 times or more for, for, for certain scenes anyway. Um, how about you, Dev? Interesting that you mentioned clip shows and countdowns and stuff, because I think that's my only exposure to it. Having now watched it, I don't think I'd ever seen the entire film. Uh, but it was such a big kind of hit and it's so kind of iconic and baked into pop culture so i probably know it from clip shows and comedy parodies and references and the general concept of the bunny boiler so um it was a slightly different experience getting to actually watch the film kind of start to finish as opposed to just seeing a bunch of talking heads washed up comedians from the 90s sort of chatting over it um so that was a really interesting experience. And I'm honestly, I'm kind of glad that I actually finally got around to watching it because there's, uh, there's a lot to dig into on that one. How about you, Patrick? Well, I watched it for the first time yesterday. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, it's one of those, we've had a few of these. So I don't really have an excuse or a reason for not having seen it. I just haven't seen it. Um, I think I always got confused though, which one was Basic Instinct, which one was Fatal Attraction. From a title point of view, you know, Michael Douglas, uh, the obvious mm. kind of, uh, distraction there. But I'm always very familiar with the term bunny boiler because it's pro- probably rude to say, but my dad, whenever I got, um, a new girlfriend when I was younger, dad was like, make sure she's not a bunny boiler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was like, what? And, and kind of got some sort of vague explanation from him as a joke when I was younger about what that was. But I've, yeah, I, until yesterday, I hadn't seen Has it. Has that and... crossed over in, into America? Cause it's a very British thing, Bunny Boiler. I don't know if, if they've mm. adopted it too. Uh, some of the articles I read, like you see the phrase of it quite a lot online. So I suppose it has, um, in a way, but, um, similar to you, Devlin. Yeah. I'm glad I've finally watched it because. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Mm, mm. Callie? Everyone knows, you guys and the listeners, anyone that's been following the show, that I have a very unhealthy relationship with Michael Douglas. What are my favorite actors? Yeah, I've, I just think he's, uh, he's one of those actors that I, I've, I've followed his career from start to finish. I avoided his television stuff. But um, I just find him fascinating because partly, I don't know, apart from maybe, say... Michael Fassbender, in recent times, there's another actor that could do what he does. And he, I think he does it so well. A little bit of sandwiches there. You know, he takes roles that, um, where he's, he's really is a scumbag and unlikable and somehow manages, um, to curry your favor. So we'll get into how he, how he manages to do that or how we think he manages to do that. But Fatal Attraction, a bit like Basic Instinct. Um, was on Sky, on rotation. My dad had Sky. He didn't really care. It was before the days of having to put one, two, three, four in a pin when it was on at like 
two o'clock in the afternoon. So, you know, I just, I, I watched it several times, but just like you've all mentioned, this to me, Fatal Attraction is, it's a bit like The Exorcist and a few other kind of like Rosemary's Baby and those kind of iconic films that end up doing rotation on those clip shows where everyone knows the key scenes and they think they've seen the film. They're like, yeah. oh yeah, I've, I've seen The Exorcist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turning around, you know, fuck you. Everyone's seen it. But actually, um, you know, have you actually sat down and watched the film? Uh, so that's why I picked it. And also in the erotic thriller and Matt, you've got the bingo board. So we will, we will check it against our checklist. But to me, this is like, this is the prototypical erotic thriller, the jumping off point for the nineties and David Coveney walking around reading some red shoe diaries. <laughs> so that is why I picked it. Do you still have a, that poster of Michael Douglas on you, on your wall with his ass out? <laughs> well, no, I, um, luckily, uh, thanks to the internet, um, and quality screen grabs, uh, I can just make my own posters. <laughs> uh, gals, I'm open for commissions, mate. If you ever want one sketched up, <laughs> I think what we should do before we, before we go into story time and, and recount the, the plot is a little bit of the, the kind of the history of the film because, um, this is, this is one of those kind of movies where it was in production for a long, long time. Several directors, um, attached, including one in particular, which I know Matt, the gloves are out on. Um, so why don't we, let's, let's go through that. Cause what, where is the erotic thriller in 1986? You know, what, why does this get made? I guess is what I'm asking for, for my 30 days half sex timber. Uh, I made a list of my, 30 that I thought kind of defined it and um you can really see a change after fatal attraction um the you know maybe cat people in 82 had you could argue had a female antagonist in a, in a way uh, but that was supernatural and quite different uh, if you look at what followed after fatal attraction you can really see in the subsequent maybe 7 years there's Basic Instinct, Single White Female, Poison Ivy, The Crush, Body of Evidence, Disclosure, and The Last Seduction, which all have strong female leads, uh, antagonists, protagonists. Um, mm. So it seemed to lock that in. Um, and the other names that, that came up, Adrian Lyne was, just came up straight away. He's the king of this stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and oh, we've yes. talked about the upcoming Deep Water as well with Affleck and uh, De Armas that we hope is going to be good in 2022. But yeah, in, in terms of what came before and what came after, this was a, a bit of a game changer. Uh, and I think you were referring to De Palma uh, b- before as the, the direct, the original director. I was referring to De Palma, but I, before I, before we get into him, um, the one that struck me was in 72, Last Tango in Paris, which mm. has obviously got the infamous butter scene and i was thinking to myself like (laughs) where was eroticism on the big screen in 86 87 and and lines had made a film which i have seen with basinger and uh uh, then you know bless him a better looking mickey rourke uh, Mm. which is nine and a half weeks so Mm. i i I, he was obviously he's kind of like the father of this type of erotic thriller because last tango in paris is can i give you uh, larry david's review of uh, last tango oh <laughs> go on then <laughs> um 
he said something about like, oh, put the butter in my ass. And then he said, uh, uh, it's pretension masquerading as art. Uh, so that's where it was, I think. Yeah, more margarine than real butter, I guess. <laughs> I, I remember the, I remember being in Leeds and dating this girl and she was like half French, half, half English. And I thought it'd be really cool to watch The Last Tango. <laughs> 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 and I hadn't seen it before. I just thought it was like, oh, she would think it would go like arty film. Fuck you, no, I didn't get it. Yeah, it's not a date movie. Um, has anyone seen the film uh, Jagged Edge yes. from 85? It's you an have. Esterhaz. Uh, yeah. It is, because this it's an Esterhaz, which is, you know, you would say uh, the sleaze merchant uh, uh, par excellence. He's one of the big of names. Yeah, And it's got Glenn Close in it. And a lot of mm-hmm. people refer to that as a film which kind of... Um, uh, kicked off a little this this kind of late eighties flurry. Um, how does something like that stack up to to Fatal Attraction? It's uh, it's not as overt sexually, but it is twisty and turny. You've got Jeff Bridges and Glenn Close as the two leads, and it keeps you guessing. Uh, I won't spoil that one because we can spoil Fatal Attraction, but I won't spoil anything else. But that Fair. one um, it, it takes some uh, some twists and turns right up until the end. What is fascinating about the the production history on Fatal Attraction is Douglas is is on board early, um, and the the producing team has also got a bit of a history. Um, one of them is called Jaffe, which was um, is burnt in my mind because I kept thinking about Jaffa cakes, um, which <laughs> obviously got nothing to do with him, all to do with me. I thought you were going to say Roland Joffe, but you said Jaffa Jaffa cake. No, no, yeah, ja- <laughs> well, no, Roland Joffe. <clears throat> uh, Super Mario Brothers will never go away from me. <laughs> But no, I was thinking more like Mr. Jaffa Cake, uh, and mm. um, and who's the who's the, the the female producer who was a former head of uh, Paramount, wasn't she? Sherry Lansing was was head of Paramount, uh, uh, and she was president of 20th Century Fox as well. And then she stepped down from from that presidency in order to uh, produce. And this is one of the first projects she got on. So she was president of 20th Century Fox from 1980 onwards. Which, if you think that's the time that Fox would have been doing like Empire and Jedi, and that's a big studio at the time. And, um, but yeah, she stepped away to, to, to make her own films. And then, uh, uh, apparently, uh, in 83, that was when she, she walked away. And that's when she decided that she wanted to, to, to option this, this story. So it was a four year, uh, journey to the screen for this one. Mm. And it's based on a short, short story was a short film, uh, made by a British director. Um, oh, what's the short story called? It was called Diversion. Diversion. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's a BBC thing, um, but uh, De Palma was brought on, like w- one of the first directors, I think, that they wanted. Uh, I heard that John Carpenter turned it down as well because it was too similar to Play Misty for me. Okay. And uh, he was a fan of that, I think. And uh, De Palma didn't want to work with Michael Douglas because he didn't think he was going to be sympathetic enough, I think was the, the word he used. Uh, and, he, and he was wrong about it. He later apologized and uh, when the film was a big hit and, uh, you know, the, the argument for De Palma versus someone like Adrian Lyne, I think, comes down to that this film has to be purely about this story and it doesn't really need an auteur. Uh, it doesn't really need someone lighting it garishly or adding things to, to please himself or anything like that. I think Adrian Lyne served the story very well. And I think as, as much as I like some of De Palma's work, although I do think he's overrated. Um, I, I think Adrian Lyon is the right 
the right guy for this particular film. Well, I'll, de- I'll, 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 I will argue when we get into Adrian Lyon about being an auteur, because I think his stamp's all over this. But I think you're right, it's more understated. I mean, I can imagine De Palma would have absolutely, not only would he have sexed it up visually, but I think he would have lent into the, the exploitation elements way more. I heard something about a kabuki mask, someone running around with a knife and a kabuki mask, like a, a Japanese... I, I, I don't really know. But yeah, he was going somewhere else with it. There was another draft. Yeah, I can I can imagine. And and De Palma, it would have ended up being distracting because you would have been concentrating on his visuals as opposed to, like you say, what's what are the characters doing? How is the story unfolding? I think Adrian Lyne said something like, um, he he found the the script to be a real page turner. He sat at the bottom of his stairs and he read it all the way through in one go. And he re- he remembered saying to someone like if if I get this, it's mine to to mess it up because everything is there on the page. And if if I just do everything the way it is in the script, it's going to be a, a massive hit. So only he can get in the way of it at, at that point. So he he didn't bring an ego into it. I think I think he was trying to serve the script, and that's that shows. I think. And to say it was a massive hit was was this the highest grossing film of the year? One of wasn't it? Was it a fifteen million dollar budget? Yeah. And it made and like six three, Oscar noms. Yeah, yeah. Six, six Oscar noms, three hundred and fifteen million in the box office, which for inflation that is outrageous for a film like this. Um, I mean, God, please bring them back. I'll go. I'll go twice. It came in. Uh, it came in third in '87, behind uh, Beverly Hills Cup Two, and just behind Platoon, but ahead of De Palma's The Untouchables. So, Ooh. Patrick, let us. Let's. You know, the water is boiling. Let it. Let it simmer down for some story time, <laughs> please. Can you give? us and our listeners a plot synopsis of Fatal Attraction. Dan Gallagher is a happily married lawyer whose work leads him to meet Alex and an instantaneous fatal attraction ensues. Dan's wife is away for the weekend, so he and Alex indulge in a passionate weekend together, throwing the kitchen sink at their sexual experiences and treat themselves to some elevator fellatio. For Dan, this is a flash in the pan affair. But for Alex, a bond has been made and she cuts her wrists in an attempt to make him stay. Their weekend together, listening to Madame Butterfly, sharing stories of their childhood and playing with Dan's dog will cost him more than he could ever have imagined. Dan goes back to his life, but Alex continues to contact him. When Dan doesn't answer at work and changes his number at home, Alex comes to his house, speaks to his wife, feigning interest in buying his home, for Dan and his family are moving to the country. After Alex has claimed to be carrying his child, she starts to stalk Dan even more. Is Dan surprised? This is what he has reduced Alex to. He thought he'd get away with it. Well, he can't. Part of him is growing inside Alex now, and that's a fact. He'd better start learning how to deal with it, because Alex can feel him, taste him, think him, touch him. But can he understand? Can he? She's just asking Dan to acknowledge his responsibilities. Is that so bad? Alex doesn't think so. She doesn't feel it's unreasonable. He thought he could just walk into her life and turn it upside down without a thought for anyone but himself. But Dan is a cock-sucking son of a bitch and pays the consequences as Alex goes full bunny boiler and taunts his family. Will Dan own up to his actions and take responsibility? After all, 
Alex isn't trying to hurt him. She loves him. Wow. Thank you very much, Patrick. That was uh, a <laughs> great job. <laughs> that was a great job, yeah. That was a tough one to get through. <laughs> <laughs> For our listeners, we can all see each other. And I, fuck, you know, guys, you, I had to fight that one. <laughs> a, a professional to the end, though, Patrick. Awesome job. I, I don't know why CBBS haven't called yet. <laughs> you, you, you told me to write it from Dan's perspective, but that that cassette from Alex, I thought was gonna. I thought let me rewrite that, and that'll lend itself very mm. well to this. Well, I, I, and there is there is the key to what I think is the power in this film, which is. When I, I, I messaged you guys offline and said, when I rewatched it, that this really should be a three part miniseries on ITV, um, because it feels like a, oh yeah, yeah, it's a Friday, Saturday concludes on Sunday kind of drama with, uh, you know, social, you know, there's a little bit of social, uh, kind of normative behavior baked in there, but it's one of those. And you could line things. of duty, uh, cliffhanger yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But, but no, this film, I think on the surface reads as like a bit of a trashy novel that you might pick up in an airport, but actually it is fucking loaded with, with so many talking points. And I think it's, it's, well, to, to sandwiches slightly, I think it's really deftly handled because every scene has got like, ask the question of the audience, like, what would you do? Who's right? Who's wrong? And it flips constantly. Uh, at least that's how I felt. You know, the, when I said write it from Dan's perspective, Dan is a bloody scumbag. But for whatever reason, the film is like, but Dan is our protagonist. So we need to stay on his side. And I love how um, the dichotomy goes back and forth. It's just wicked. I, I, I'd agree, Gally. Um, I was, I haven't seen it. Obviously, you've got a bit bigger relationship with this than I have. So I, I found myself conflicted throughout the whole thing, uh, watching it yesterday. And there were often times when I was just exclaiming to myself, like, fucking hell. You know, like <laughs> goggle box type, <laughs> a goggle box type of reactions. Like, whoa. And then you let her actions settle down and think about what's driven her to do this. And then I'm on Alex's side and then I'm like with Dan and, in Dan's side of things, maybe through to a performance, but what it was very, it's a very interesting film on, on that service. Uh, <laughs> where did your sympathies lie then? Because I, I kind of started off behind the guy. I was like team Douglas. Yeah. Um, well, and I know I always was. She's a maniac and you know, she deserves everything she gets, blah, blah, blah. But then over the course of researching and, and rewatching, I found out more about Glenn Close's process and the way that she mm. attempted to play the character, and I began to soften a little bit uh, on in, in terms of that. My mm. my sympathy was absolutely with Alex in the park. Really, scene. you know, in the, you mm. know, when they go to the park, which is a very odd scene anyway. Like, oh, I, where he fakes the heart attack. Yeah, yeah. And before we get into that, Patrick, let it be said that it's the ultimate betrayal, not only to cheat on your wife, but to take the dog for a yeah, war yeah. with your mistress. Well, sorry, I, I, I'm taking your words out. I just wanted to fight for the dog. Sorry. <laughs> I, like, I do like yeah. the tracking shot of the dog close up. Like, yeah. <laughs> 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 which which I, I love very much. <laughs> but it, there, Matt, like at the very beginning, it's obviously one night stands, one night stand and uh, fine. But to, to allow himself to give him, give himself to her again another day and spend that kind of 
how do I put mm. it? Like, like well, normal a court, relationship, a isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's like it's like yeah. going on a second date, like the night after you've you've kind of go, oh, I wouldn't mind seeing you again, and we'll see where this goes. It's not mm. fair. It, it, that's where the sympathy goes straight to Alex. So it's very early on. I think the film, the way the film develops, is quite clever to then turn more into the thriller uh, and antagonist kind of make, make her out to be more of an antagonist. But the reason and the inciting incidents there from that Sunday, telling her about his his family and his history and something personal. I love the um the the momentum in it. That's what you were saying, like the because this, me and Patrick, having now watched it pretty much, well, for the first time, I was familiar with it. You were familiar with it, at least as a pop culture thing. But seeing it play out the way it plays out, and the the um the pacing of it is so great and it's so gripping that throughout you're you are swept along with with just what's happening on screen, and you are largely just kind of surface level terrified for Dan and his safety. And I think it's probably as it goes on more and more so, and it's probably after the fact when you go back and you and you kind of have time away from that that relentless pressure cooker of the thriller um, structure that you start to then pick apart the um, the behaviors and 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 by the next day you kind of you know you you can't help but um, but feel that perhaps we've been had <laughs> by Dan Gallagher. And and the and the uh, the male gaze of the 1980s. I know we jumped ahead a little bit then, like developing the plot, but again, not really knowing the film at all. That opening scene, I think, really sets up Lynn's style and a great uh, mm. sense of foreboding. So that whole scene, I was kind of like, "What's happening here? There's no music. It's very you're still." Talking about the park, or are you talking about no, the, very me, the, the very the very when they're getting ready in the flat and he's getting ready to go out? And I love the, the opening daughter. shot across the the the, the, yeah. um, the the cityscape, and then it's almost like there's a story in every one of these houses, and yeah. it chooses to come in on this one, and she draws the curtains. Uh, that's a great way in, but yeah, you're talking about the the, the apartment where he's got the headphones on. And, yeah, and just on that, Matt, I think that's that's line. What you were saying about line, saying that the the story is there. So how do we get the audience to to kind of immediately empathise with the story that's about to unfold? Well, you make it in the opening shot as if this could happen to anyone, which is exactly how that how that opening shot uh, translate as far as like visual grammar. It's like it could go across anyone, and we focus in on this one flat in and amongst thousands of flats and that's i just thought it was like genius i was like Mwah, fantastic sorry patrick go ahead no you know, this is all exactly right and it, i'm like what so why am i here what's going on there's a reason for being in this setting there's a reason i'm not hearing any music and it's all very cinefactual and i start thinking of don't look now when i in this opening scene mm-hmm. from a kind of pedophobia type of uh point of view with um the child answering the door for me was I was really on edge and had my backups. I'm like, what? Whoa, whoa, whoa! The parents aren't paying attention. There's a child opening a door here. What's going on? And then a little bit at relief. And I, I think tonally, it's a really great setup uh, for for what for how it's going to play out and what little things like um, a boiling kettle or a door closing slowly that are really going to unnerve me throughout the whole film. And that is set up from this first scene. It's great that you don't get that domestic bliss feel from it, right? You don't get the kind of sitcom uh, uh, family that's going to be subverted. You, you're not, you're not welcomed into a kind of golden glow. The, the apartment has like a real smoky texture to it. I know Adrian Lyon loves his smoke, but it feels odd yeah. to put it into that scene. It looks like there's a small fire. 
But they, they don't make him <laughs> despicable or anything either. They kind of, they balance it just right. So you've got the happy family, but he's got his headphones on. He's a bit, um, mm. isolated from, from things. It's pitched just right. I, I think that very beginning. Yeah. It's cool. They mentioned don't look now as well. Cause you have that same thing of, you know, the, the couple that are very comfortable with each other, which, which is always, uh, always going to be reminiscent of that incredible scene in the middle of don't look now between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. Yeah. Well, yeah. that, that's where I, my head was at the very beginning. I'm like, Whoa. Oh my God. No. You know, like that's, that was my association. And then we go into the, is it a party? It's a book launch. Yeah. yeah uh, a book. Yeah. It's a book launch. And we've got that, uh, classic 80s social panic of, uh, Japanese culture invading into America. Can we do that now? Cause I, I wanted to ask you about that. Like what is going on with that? Like, uh, I don't know what the entire continent of Asia did to deserve this, but the, the sushi jokes and the umbrella that doesn't work being made in Taiwan and the guy doing the bow and he's getting made fun of for it. I- yeah. I think it's yuppie sensibility in New York at the time, isn't it? It's a Wall Street thing because this is a, an expensive luxury sushi and all of that at the time. And I think it's an indulgence. And I think that's where it comes from. Well, I wondered if it had anything to do with Madame Butterfly as well. That was the only other Asian reference that I mm-hmm. can think of. There's a peculiar thing that happens after the one night stand, which should have been a one night, I, I guess... It's still a one night stand, right? But no, before he goes no, back. No, he, no, no. It, 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 Matt, you're, you're listening to Dan. He slept with a more than bloody voice. <laughs> <laughs> if, if he doesn't go to sleep, it doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he walks out onto the street, the New York City street, and you've got the, the smoke that Devlin's mentioned. I want to get into that as a visual theme a bit later, but um, there's a wide shot and the only text that's visible in the wide shot is it says Asia on the right side of the right. frame and i have no clue what's going on i, I wondered if if you you could enlighten me a bit on it but yeah i think the, the yuppie culture and madame butterfly could have something to do with it i think matt this is another example of you know adrian Lyne is from peterborough in england and i think some of the greatest american movies are made by people that are not american i just think mm. he managed to get a he's he's on the pulse of what is currently frightening you know, Reagan era America, which yeah. is a- Asian invasion, which is, you know, Japanese culture, Japanese manufacturing, Japanese business. Uh, and I just think he's just reflecting that. And I think Patrick's absolutely right. You know, it's that yuppie sensibility. They are, mm. they, they treat it as like, you know, an indulgence and something that's just accessible. And that kind of feeds into Dan's whole worldview of just kind of being a little bit entitled. Like they are above it all. They can make jokes and not feel any consequence. Dan can do whatever he wants. Mm. And obviously yeah. that comes to, you know, he, 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 you know, Alex then says like, you need to face up to your responsibilities. Yeah. It, yeah. I think it just feeds into that. I, I've, uh, you know, if it was made in the nineties, it would have been, you know, what was, what was nineties social panics about? What I think America, America felt very uh, on top, but I, if it was made in the, like four years ago, it would have been China. You know, it's the yeah, same yeah. thing. It's any yeah. it's any rising world power that chan- challenges American hegemony would be. Uh, it's an it's a fascination and a revulsion at the same time. And if you think like Marty McFly's future boss from Back to the Future <laughs> Two barking at him, it's uh, yeah. there was a there was a terror. I think that the idea that like Japan, a country <laughs> that they had uh, uh, you know, defeated in 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 war and then had rebuilt 
in their own image to an extent had had kind of overtaken them. Die Hard has uh, Takagi and uh, all of that too, with the Nakatomi Tower and all that. So yeah, maybe. But on to Douglas. What an asshole for speaking for openly approaching Alex at that bar and knowing full well that he's um, wanting to get a flavour of what that attraction is. Well, yeah. I wondered if that had anything to do with Jimmy because there's a little interaction between her and Jimmy, and he. Well, I assume Jimmy uh, wasn't married at that point. <laughs> yeah, I did too. Dennis Nedry. Uh, <laughs> the, he, he, he gets rejected flat out by her. And then I think when Douglas finds himself next to her at the bar, I'm not sure he approaches the bar. I, I think he, he does. finds himself there. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. And, and then when he does notice her, I think there's a competition in him where it's like, she's rejected my yeah, friend. I'm going to see if I could, uh, could pull her if I tried. One of the things I love, and we'll get into the performances, but one of the things I really adore about Michael Douglas in this film, this is alongside his performance in Wonder Boys. This is my favorite Douglas because he's kind of slubby and he's not quite like perfect. You know, his hair's a little bit off. He's got a slight double chin. Mm. He's a bit goofy, you know, the uh, cream on his nose and the meat, <clears throat> the, 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 the infamous ankle trouser walk, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> all of that stuff kind of under undercuts the the what we now know as michael douglas but at this point in his career he's you know he's done romance in the stone he's second generation hollywood elitism but he's trying to get out of the shadow of his as you know his more famous father so he's decided you know what i am going to play against what everyone thinks i'm going to do he's also got a higher up job though as well like it's a well-paid job to go against that not to say that he's not good at his job, but we don't see him as like a high powered dressed in a pin yeah. suit. Mm. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of, he's kind of slubby. And I like that. And his mate is as well. They're all, they're all a little bit yuppie-ish, but not in a, not in a Patrick Bateman way, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. I love the, um, when he's in the, 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 the one uh, business meeting we see him in, he's just sitting there with a little, crappy paper cup of coffee with I heart NY emblazoned. <laughs> that scene with the, uh, the, the bagel and the cream cheese on his nose was interesting. Uh, I heard Adrian line talking about it and he wanted to suggest there that these two could have been a real couple. They could have been a, a nice regular, ordinary couple. And if, if you think if something like that happens to you, not everyone in the room is going to tell you that you've got something on your nose or on your face or something, but if someone does, you have like a little connection with that, with that person. They, they took the time to tell you. So you're not embarrassed. And that, that moment between them suggests that. And, uh, that's just another layer to it. Like in another kind of parallel universe, maybe they could have been a happily married couple themselves. Who knows? And, th- and then we have the goofy moment with the umbrella as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, so it all kind of underplays Douglas. And, and, and one of the things that again, that we mentioned with what maybe De Palma would have done is he probably would have, you know, there would have been more style thrown at this. Whereas when I, when I, I'm not trying to um, knock it for feeling like an ITV three part miniseries, but it feels so grounded despite it being in New York, despite him being a high powered lawyer. And that all feeds into my anxiety when I'm watching it, which is holy shit. Like I am never going to do this uh which is probably why I, I you know just confession time with uh with galley i've never cheated on uh anybody probably because i watched fatal attraction <laughs> <laughs> why, why does he cheat then shall we get into that 
Where does it come from? I think, I think because he can. He, the, the opportunity is presented to him. Yeah. Um, like there was an Adrian Lyne quote again. He was interested in the arbitrary nature of infidelity. And mm-hmm. he said it was interesting. Um, you know, she, she's not, uh, more physically beautiful, let's say, than, than Ann Archer, for example. Uh, so you, you ask yourself why Douglas cheats, but, normally like I, I don't think men cheat because the person is better looking i don't think that comes into it i think it's it's something yeah. that's there it's something that's on a plate they can't resist and they they uh they have a moment of weakness and and do it and for, for someone different not necessarily better but someone different well we also have matt just before that they've come back from the book launch party and he's taken the dog out. And when he comes back in, he's got the look of right sexy time. <laughs> and when he gets into the bedroom, the daughter's there and it's interrupted. Right. And he definitely has an expression of, Oh, fuck's sake. And I think that's all we really need to know that he's, you know, looking for some, some sort of gratification elsewhere because she's away for the weekend and it, it's presented. Cause the easy, the easy way is to make the wife a waspy drag Who's yeah. like, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I always think about the Simpsons episode when Homer cheats. Um, um, uh, she's got, um, she's got a cold, hasn't she? So that's why Homer's like, oh, she's got a cold and the kids are running around and they make an ex- you know, so they, they kind of give Homer the excuse. And in this film, I don't, I think Lyons does a really good job by, of, of downplaying any association with, well, of course he would mm-hmm. because one, Glenn Close, as you rightfully say, Matt, is not conventionally Hollywood attractive i know that there was a few other women like loads of women went for the role including michelle pfeiffer if michelle pfeiffer was alex then everyone would just be like well yeah of course like figure it mm. out of course you would but but no glenn close has got a different energy and a different look and a different kind of attraction and i i wonder if he's just attracted to the idea that she's so forthright and direct a bit like a male would be which is are we going to do this you know she's also a strong think- like powerful like can't yeah. start with and, she, and holds a ground with Jimmy. And I don't know, it's, it, 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 it sparked him, didn't it? I think it easy it. sex outweighs the importance of, of her being hot. It, it's a sad fact of the male psyche. I think uh, like if you involve alcohol too, and then it's, it's really bad news, but I, I think trying to rationalize why men do it is futile. She doesn't have to be prettier to, to tempt him. I, I think he thinks he can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, even definitely. more than that, even if he does get caught, he thinks he'll be forgiven. So uh, I, I think that's kind of where he's coming from. And he wants something different, not better. He's just weak at that point and he And he takes takes the bait. I wonder, and here's a question for you guys. Is it Douglas's first time and definitely Glenn's like 15th with a married, like extramarital affair? Because I get the sense that Close is, this is like not her first rodeo, so to speak. I wouldn't say 15, but it's not her first, but it, it probably is his first, I think. I, I think so, Matt. Yeah. Uh, because it's, if you look at the, the moment where they're in bed together after the fact and, uh, she's satisfied and he says, Oh, thank God. Oh, thank God. <laughs> he, he's, he's managed to, uh, satisfy her. And, um, it was important to him that, that he did that um and and he's he's taken a risk and he's taken this chance to to have an affair and he it's it's crucial to him that he's it was worthwhile and and Mm. pleasing her in in bed was was a big part of it it's interesting how much of it that we're talking about is so wrapped up in 
in the uh, minutiae and the, the the specifics of Michael Douglas's or Dan Gallagher's uh, thought process, especially down to when we're saying, you know, like you were saying, Matt, about the um, the importance of conventional beauty, I think is overstated. I think this this idea that uh, um, ranking attractiveness via the kind of arbitrary means that you'd get in like an FHM top 100 list or whatever it doesn't, I don't think it factors into people's real lives in the way it does in like media and fantasy. And stuff. I don't think that that's how attraction works. And I, I think that um, it probably is in that scene, I think, Every act, actually, every action that he does is entirely self-serving. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think he sees her as anything other than than a than a bit of a conquest. He's intrigued by her. He's probably very flattered, immediately flattered, and I think that lets his guard down. Also, um, I think that it's it's suggestive of a of a sort of a weakness at the core of all men that all it would take would be a little bit of attention in the short term and it's it's maybe not even about cheating it's maybe not even about finding something new i think it is literally whoever is going to express even the remotest interest in me as a sexual uh person i will pursue that to its end can can we break down the restaurant just a little bit before we move on there's uh, yeah 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 um, let's do it i i think like you said gal it's a vital scene and the film pivots on that moment and it's handled expertly i think uh, there's the, are you discreet? Yes, I'm discreet. Um, uh, the, the timing of the way she pauses before he lights her cigarette. He's like literally getting his fingers burned yeah. in, in, that, in that moment. Uh, and, and the way it's done, we're just hanging on that moment because you're conscious of the flame on the, on, on the match as, as it's been posed. And like she wants his answer. Um, when she desires it, she, she is the instigator there for me. And I think that the cards are on the table. Everything is understood. There's a pact of sorts that's been made. He basically says it's up to her at one point if they get together. Uh, and then we, we kind of directly cut to the, to the sex scene after that. But, uh, Line did some interesting things, um, on, on over Michael Douglas's single close up. Um, he directed Glenn Close to say some really saucy things to him off, off camera. <laughs> so on, over, so over Michael Douglas's close up, uh, her dialogue is, uh, extra naughty, I think, to get that reaction out of him. And also she started playing footsie with him under the table, apparently, yeah. just to, uh, get a little bit of a, uh, a shocked reaction from him for his close-ups, which I thought was interesting. And there's and- another, there's, there's another beat as well, Matt, for Michael Douglas being um, a bit of a slub, which is how he's trying to impress her. Like, I, I, they know me here. They know me here at the restaurant. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah oh, well, well, whatever that means. Like, yeah, they're, they're going to get you em- extra coffee. <laughs> emasculating the whole thing, isn't it? The, the umbrella yeah. that he can't get up. That's very obvious <laughs> what's going on there. Yeah. And then uh, the, he can't get the attention of the waiter uh, as, as hard as he tries. And then uh, the cream cheese bagel on his nose, all of that stuff is, uh, he's, he's not the super cool Lothario. Uh, and, and she is in control of that situation. And I, I feel like he's quite hard done by at that point because they're, they're entering into a social contract where she's perfectly aware that he's married and it's going to be an, an, an illicit affair that, that, that she's going to be discreet about and that's where i'm on on his side at at, at that point oh, i definitely think it's gonna be up to you can't say yet i haven't made up my mind 
least you're very honest. We were attracted to each other at the party. That was obvious. You're on your own for the night. That's also obvious. I'm glad you said that. That was my next point. Is like, well, we've spoken about what an asshole. Uh, Dan's a fantastic man. No, uh, Dan is is an asshole for pursuing this, but with Alex, yeah, exactly. Alex knows he's married, and she shouldn't be doing it herself. And going on the conventional like attractiveness of Glenn Close, because um, I was thinking about that and how to sensitively put it. I've never ever thought about. Glenn Close in that way and I think it's a mark of a great actor I'm, I'm still only just getting over the fact that she goes into the boo box in Hook, that's that pirate and it's, this insane actor can, it doesn't matter what appearances are or anything she's so attractive in those moments especially in that um, uh, uh, dinner scene because of the way she holds herself and it's that attitude the lines, isn't it Patrick the way that she's dressed acting. up the attitude yeah. and like god she is sexy in that moment and you can see why he's like right let's go in in the making of there was a there was a list of the actresses you mentioned uh, uh Michelle Pfeiffer who I think was unavailable but there's also a list uh that of actresses that turned it down and it was Miranda Richardson Amy Irving Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, oh, wow. Helen Mirren, Ray Dawn Chong from Commando, and oh. uh, hit me with your best shot, uh, Pat Benatar. <laughs> Pat Benatar? Oh, yeah. shit. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, Melissa Leo. Was, <laughs> that, that was the last one I, I, I saw. But then if you, if you watch the documentary, you can see there's like a, a release that they've put out. And the, the top half of the A4 sheet is actresses that turned it down. And the bottom half is the not available list so i think michelle pfeiffer was in the not available list yeah yeah it was just it was more that you know for for audiences you know if michelle pfeiffer turns up yeah you're right people will immediately go well i get it yeah maybe Mm. if michelle pfeiffer also spoke to me like even once i'd probably be like yeah (laughs) which which again i think it it bypasses the uh the the psychological rigor of the film, I think it does actually hold up as a, as a smarter and more interesting piece and a more realistic piece because otherwise, yeah, you've got this kind of, this is movie logic. This is the, the beautiful girl walks in. And of course the cheating happens. Patrick said before about, um, that the stars kind of aligning, uh, in, in terms of why he cheats, it, everything's there for him and he, and he takes the opportunity um and there's also some stuff in the office where they're talking about the senators fooling around that's in the dialogue and Mm. then between him and her her eyes kind of light up in that moment where they're they're talking of people cheating or fooling around and it's almost as if that kind of activates her uh so there's there's something else going on there uh Mm. the, the, the other thing about glenn close that she did really well in terms of playing a villain uh, is that she didn't play alex as a villain um a lot of a lot of the time great actors will say you know even if, if you're playing adolf hitler you, you can't judge him you, you have to yeah. find some kind of humanity as, as hard as you as hard as it may be you have to find something to allow you to get into the skin of that person and uh when we get onto the alternate ending and stuff we can do a bit more on that because i do feel like she was be- betrayed a little bit but um i i think that she managed to get into the skin of, of alex 
brilliantly and she does a terrific job. Well, here's, here's one for you because when I was rewatching this, I was trying to like make a bit of a list of this type, this archetype, which the fatal attraction with its success, you know, there were, you know, scores of imitators, single white female, hand that rocks the cradle. Um, I think Matt, you put it so beautifully offline as, uh, you know, what would you say? Why can't they just be crazy? Because that's like, oh, that's, that's Chris Rock. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Like, just, Whatever happened to crazy? Yeah. <laughs> just, just being crazy. Um, mm. but it reminded me of why Cameron Diaz doesn't work in Vanilla Sky, which is she's playing it so big, so mm. obsessive that it's, even though Tom Cruise is a scumbag in that because he's playing Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> and not that I, not that I sympathize with him in Vanilla Sky because he's just some rich, uh, some rich spoiled kid. But I also don't sympathize with Cameron Diaz because she's, she's too, this, she's too much. She's like, yeah, you are literally crazy. Whereas Glenn yeah. Close, I don't think plays the end scene. We'll get to that alternate ending. It's probably the only moment where you're like, no, she's, she's movie crazy. Uh, but I think the rest of the film, I absolutely understand why she she goes down the rabbit hole that she does uh because dan consistently keeps engaging with it like for example when she cuts a wrist which is obviously horrendous and quite shocking i mean really is quite shocking it's the first big shock of the movie isn't it yeah it really is it was the first time because i'd forgotten about it as well and i'd forgotten how early it comes it like comes after what 20 minutes 25 minutes Mm, it's half an hour because it's the first um Beat we have of music, of score music as well. Oh, well, I yeah, mean, again, and you know, you don't even notice that there's no, un, like, underscore, there's no score music, uh, to, to kind of tell you how you should be feeling. But that happens so early on. But Douglas keeps comforting her. Like, if he really wanted to kind of distance himself, he would, cause he's doing the, you know, quote unquote right thing. You know, I will help you out because, of course, you know, first aid, et cetera. But he doesn't need to cuddle her, kiss her, reassure her. He could do that he in a way. To send her to the hospital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Instead, he's like, no, no, no. I will comfort you like a lover would comfort you, mm-hmm. not like somebody who's trying to back away. And uh, mm. he keeps doing it throughout the whole film. Is her motivation solely love at this point? She's experienced something that she needed at that place and time, and he's given her over that weekend, and now... Because you know, like she says, she loves him after a very short amount of time. Is 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 she that kind of person that absolutely needs this? He's given it her, and the threat of it being going away is is too much for her. This is the interesting bit, Patrick. We are four blokes talking about this film. I watched this with mm. Danielle, and I would suggest that out of the sixty odd films that we've watched for the show, this is the one where she got really quite involved in mm-hmm. and it was it, it was fascinating to me because she was seeing things that i wasn't seeing and she was reading things that i didn't read and it's you know it comes down to lived in experience and perspective you know one of the key scenes that she pointed to was when he's late uh he's late for the meeting with the publisher and the publisher stands up and shakes his hand and they have a bit of a you know a, a bit of camaraderie and then i think he the the guy's like oh uh she's late and he rolls his eyes and then Alex comes in and Danielle was saying, yeah, that is what it's like. You know, if you mm-hmm, put mm-hmm. one step out of line, everyone will judge you for it. But because Douglas is late and no one gives a monkeys and he's got his I love New York. So she kept rationalizing Alex's behavior from the perspective of somebody that is an outsider in a male dominated environment that she's got to be better than everyone else. And I just think she's 
you know, we mentioned this is probably not her first extramarital affair. It goes from love to obsession to a kind of need, doesn't it? She's just like, you know what? I am sick to death of being trampled on. So you are now going to feel the, you know, the, my air, my air, I guess. Um, that's how I, that's what Danielle told me, but I saw it. I don't know. It's interesting what you guys think her motivations were. That's a good reading and, and based on what we see in the film, but there's something a little bit deeper through doing a bit more research. There's a theory, uh, that it has to do with, uh, she was a, a victim of incest that was within her research. You can also use the father subplot a little bit there that there's that if there's a relevance to him being present at all and uh, the death of her father um his father died of a heart attack and he and and michael douglas i keep saying michael douglas dan plays uh we have to be careful here because he was a real life sex maniac uh, uh, dan plays a trick on her in the park and she's genuinely annoyed uh, and you can yep. see it. She's so disappointed. And she says, my father died that way. I was seven years old. It happened right in front of me. And then he regrets it. And then she pretends she's joking because I think she's giving too much away mm. at that point that she doesn't want to give away too much to him. Um, so through Glenn Close's research, why would someone behave this way? This is prior to the reshot ending where she mm. becomes Jason Voorhees. Uh, and she's trying to rationalize why that behavior was, was going on. And, uh, the psychiatrist that she talked to, um, suggested that maybe she'd been abused as a child and she was holding on to that. Uh, and, and it's a bit simplistic to say daddy issues or something like that, but, um, you can see how a, a victim of abuse, again, we've, we've explored it in, uh, films like audition and things like that. Victims of abuse can end up at, it can be a little um, like simplistic and damaging sometimes, but that's in retrospect. I think, you know, the the, yeah. the world has, has gained a greater understanding of this stuff, but um, there does seem to be like a, there are times when it seems like a an awkwardly retcon shoehorned in justification for things. Whereas I really do think mm. that Glenn Close had a really consistent psychological through line on the character and that she was probably also playing it with perhaps a borderline personality disorder or a bipolar disorder. She was in a manic episode. She was, mm -hmm. uh, she was already basically at the end of, of, of a rope. And clearly she had absolutely no safety net whatsoever, no support network. Every time you see her outside of the context of Dan, she's completely alone, completely mm -hmm. isolated and, and completely consumed by this one human, uh, um, um, interaction that she's had and it's coming uh, from a place of wanting to play a fully rounded human being and explain the behavior i don't think it's coming from a from from a cheap place but it can oh, sound no, that no. way of course not every victim of abuse is going to do something horrendous but um yeah as a way of explaining it away i think at, at least she tried to, to to do something on the isolation thing though i think that's what i took from it and just to answer my own question a bit i see it as at the end of the film she takes ellen away for a day trip like you know, it's, it's very um on the surface it's really terrifying and it's really kind of uh scary but ellen isn't affected by it because she's obviously had a nice time and then when she gets into the bath when alex gets into the bathroom with, with dan's wife there she says to her what are you doing here and for me it's all about alex wanting a family and and that goes back to the psychological maybe uh 
trauma that she's had in the past. She hasn't had a family. It's broken home type of thing. And it's this promise and this, um, it, it may even be her first time sleeping with someone, Gally, like, to be honest, because this has taken her, uh, swept her completely off her feet to start with. And she's besotted and in love. And I, I, that's where I kind of see mm. and the desperation as well. Though. There's a line though, she says where, you know, why are all the good ones married? So that's what, that what, ah, that's okay. what led me yeah, to yeah, think yeah. that she, she might have engaged in this before. But one of the things that Matt was talking about, and we've said about simplistic, uh, portrayals and, and kind of reductive, simplistic justifications for characters' motivations. One of the things that I think Adrian Lyons as the, the director does, and uh, this is kudos to the, the craftsmanship throughout all the departments is one of the things that I picked on, up on, and it's really simple. It's really, really simple. It's just the, the, the way that the uh, apartments are dressed. So Dan's feels lived in. It's, you know, there's clutter everywhere. It's a family. Dadlin, you're right. It's not like idyllic families. This isn't uh, a sitcom, but it feels lived in. There's pictures. There's, you know, there's memories. There's all sorts of stuff. Glenn, uh, Glenn Close is Christ. Whoops. Um, Alex's apartment, white, neutral, basically bare. And the only thing that's in there is very eighties is a little, uh, well, it would now be a Peloton bike. You know, there are mm. other bikes available, but it's, uh, it's just a little, uh, it's just a little <laughs> turbo um, trainer, turbo trainer. Yeah. And that yeah. is it. Who, who, and so immediately again, even if you're not registering it subconsciously, you're like, no, I get it. Her life is empty. Mm-hmm. His life is full. And, and, and lines is the, one of the best moves is that little montage where they're, or they're cross cutting and Douglas is uh, yes. playing, playing bowling and having a fucking wonderful time. And she's just, uh, you know, she is, we see it. It's, it's sad. It's really, really, Turning really the light sad. on and off. Is that what you think? Yeah. It's well, just, she, yeah, she listening to Adam the movie, Butterfly yeah. again and yeah. holding on to that, that thing with Dan there. And I'm wondering if Dan is the only one, you said like, why are all the married men? All the best of married men. I'm wondering if Dan's the only one who's actually had sex. Taking her up on it. Yeah, yeah. taking her up on it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Um, it's, it's just, and, and, and let's not forget, it's not just that Dan's getting strikes at bowling. He's just about to be made a partner. <laughs> <laughs> he's just, yeah. he's just, he's having a great time. He's just about to be made a partner. Dan's a, a fantastic man. Dan is yeah. a really. These are sex people, Lynn. During the scenes where we're talking about, uh, him, uh, having his, having his wonderful times montage with his, with his friends while her life is so empty. You also see the arrogance within him that he masks. He often masks exactly. He tells you exactly what he's thinking by masking it under a patina of a joke. So there's the time in the restaurant where, like you were saying, Matt, that he's been emasculated by not being able to get a waiter's attention. So he makes a mm. joke of it. And when he's at the dinner table yeah. with, um, Dennis Nedry and Dennis Nedry's wife, <laughs> he is making <laughs> an Ill- <laughs> he's making an elaborate he's making an elaborate yeah. play of this idea of being the uh the arrogant um uh alpha who's going to move on and leave them all behind but of course you don't you don't create that fiction without in some way buying into your own bullshit so there 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 is a a real a kind of a uh an, an arrogance within do you think and- it's a, a fragile masculinity uh, th- there's a thing about like where they go salsa dancing. Uh, I think there's something there, like, cause you know, we've attacked him for sort of doing more with her, like going out on, a, on almost a date for this, for the salsa dancing stuff. But that's the bit that feels like a, 
uh, like he's back in college again or like he's on a, on a date with a, with a new, a new woman in his life. And that's, that's his chance to be the stud again. And, uh, you, you know, so I, I feel like that, that could be a, an issue with his, with his masculinity. I just kept focusing on the smaller moments. So when he gets back, um, after already indulging in some spag bowl with Alex, the fact that he feeds the <laughs> spaghetti that his wife made him to the dog just was like, Dan, you are, you are such a bastard. Like, there you go. Eat that up nicely. <laughs> a tale of two pastors. That's interesting. There's, there's a moment where he messes up the bed in a duplicitous way to make it look like he's been sleeping in the bed for narcissistic <laughs> behavior. Yeah. And, uh, there's the, the bit where he feeds the, the spaghetti to the dog and uh, people were applauding in the test screening, which I found really unusual. Uh, it was Brian De Palma's concern that he was not going to be likable but the audience was so behind him at that point. They wanted him to get away with it. They wanted him to get away with Whoa. it. Yeah, you can't, nah. you can't quantify the Douglas factor. I'll tell you what, though, on a performance level for Douglas, when he comes back and he rings his wife after the first, um, yeah, first night, Strong, he, he does some great work in that scene. And from a directing point of view, it's way, Sandwiches, favorite scenes. Um, there's a cutaway of the family photos by the phone. It's all really well staged and blocked. And his performance, that almost awkward trepidation because he's not been in this situation before and he doesn't want his voice to betray him. And he, you know, he, he has that guilt there. But, you know, like making this phone call is probably his way of like, right, I've done it now. That's it moving on. I think that's a, mm. a really strong, a, he's, cementing he's a bastard but b performance wise i think that's fucking great well hello what happened to you hi uh um nothing i just i went out and had uh, dinner with bill last night how is he uh he's bill's you know bill's bill the same as usual he's still with my girl well um he wasn't last night i think it's over he didn't really seem like want to talk about it so are you getting any work done Listen, there's some of the spaghetti sauce in the refrigerator if you get hungry. Great, okay. Uh, how's Ellen doing? Uh, she is having the best time. I just hope that Dad survives it. <laughs> Honey, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, she wants a rabbit. Oh, no rabbits. Jesus Christ, this goddamn family's turning into Noah's Ark. I mean, please, give her a kiss, all right? And But no promises. All right. Well, I'm going to top that, Patrick, and I'll de- I'll deliver you a better Douglas scene, in my opinion. The confession, which is also oh, a man. lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in order to do the confession, because I think it slips your it slips your attention as an audience member with how subtle he is, because you forget that he's also still lying in the confession, which is <laughs> a strength in the actor when he talks about it was just one time. It wasn't one time, was it, Douglas? But he still is lying. However, I'm still with him. When when Alex takes the kid is probably the bit where most audience members, if they did have any sympathy, would be like, you've invaded the home and you've now like essentially kidnapped the child. Though the child yeah. had a wonderful time, the kiss at the end in the car is like almost a kiss of death. Oh, did you see that that was originally she was going to cut the braids off the kid? 
the kid was supposed to have braids and that was going to be like a little trophy. Yeah, that's Hamlet yeah. rocks the cradle stuff. You, that yeah. would be too but far then, again. I, I think that's one of the, re- the only reason they didn't do that is because the kid that they cast had short, short hair, which is, uh, I always thought it was Alan. It's like, I thought it was a boy. And then it, it's a girl called <laughs> Ellen. And uh, I think the reason that they went that way was because it, it sounded like from the making of that there's a lot of theater ham kids coming in like little, uh, with pushy mothers, you know, stage school kids and Adrian Lyne wanted someone a bit more natural. And this little girl came in with like scabs on her knees because she'd been playing in the playground and a mum answered the casting someone. call, didn't she? Yeah. It was much, much, uh, she's she just, a, it's a much more naturalistic approach to it, but they couldn't do the braid thing because she had short hair. So it turned into a kiss, which is actually better. Well, it's way more effective. Yeah. Um, Kiara had a different take on this, which is that, uh, she said, and now this is obviously the most pivotal scene, so I'm sure we'll get there. But she said, you kill a rabbit, like, that's it. Audience sympathy is done at that point. <laughs> I think there would be, yeah. I think there would be more psychological complexity and probably more of a, a, a audience, a residual audience sympathy towards Alex. Uh, you could, like we were saying, you know, her life is empty. She clearly wants to have a family. When she sees the happy family sitting around the fireplace and she, and she's sick, she's physically sick. You can tell that there is something very wrong with this woman and that she needs help, but then she kills a rabbit. Uh, so I don't give a fuck now. Well, you're fearing for the dog as well at that point. I mean, the rabbit, you know, it's a bit like introducing a character and then killing him in the next scene. I I hadn't had the affection of the rabbit yet, but the dog I feared (laughs) for, I was like, that dog better not get touched. There's a great line from Alex earlier on in the film, which I think relates to, it must be deliberate. And she goes, I love animals. I'm a great cook. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) But also, um, what I do like about the direction is, yeah, there's all that payoff, which is great. There's also a couple of beats that, um, and I, I'm unaware of the alternative ending. So I'm looking forward to you guys enlightening me because I imagine it's how I imagined the film to end. The rug being pulled from under my feet was uh, Alex watching a commercial with a taser and we never see a taser. And I thought she was going to get one uh, and, and Madam Butterfly. Patrick, you were saying that you haven't seen the alternative ending. And if, uh, um, there's there's two setup payoffs, uh, Madam Butterfly, and also there's uh, one more in the kitchen fight, the, the kind of the climactic kitchen fight. A very, very, very obvious, which I'm sure you saw, uh, uh, shot reaction of Dan taking the knife from her, holding it, and then placing it down on the counter. Now, that's the knife, obviously, that comes back in the ending, in the theatrical ending. But the fact that his fingers lingered over the handle, I can only assume you also twigged that that's a man leaving his prints on a weapon. I've got it here, Devin, written down. Yeah. And it, that was, this is another, like, I was watching it in pure goggle box style yesterday, like, fuck it out. What is, <laughs> like, come on, man, don't leave your prints on the knife. Cause, uh, yeah, cause the Madam Butterfly thing, I thought was going to come back at the end. She'd kill herself with that knife and his prints be all over it and she, yeah. he'd be framed for it. That's that's it. Oh, it's like you've well. seen a film before, Patrick. <laughs> yeah. That, that was the, um, the original version not the theatrical version so what what happened there 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 was an interesting thing also with the tape uh that uh alex gives to dan that he plays in the car uh after he is arrested and carted off for questioning uh ann archer uh looks for jimmy's number i think he says call jimmy i'm scared uh and then he has to 
she she looks for Jimmy's uh, number, attempts to call Jimmy. Uh, it's engaged, but she comes across the tape on the desk and the tape yes. itself. Yeah, because he leaves it in there. Yeah. Yeah, it gives away that she was suicidal and that uh, if he didn't do her bidding, she would cut deeper the next time. To give uh, Patrick a bit more context than probably people who maybe haven't gone onto YouTube or sought out the scene, um, the way it plays out is that Dan... Uh, um, his wife, is it terrible, but also indicative of the film that we don't really know her name? <laughs> Anyone give me her name straight away. It's, uh, yeah. Beth Gallagher. Beth, okay. Beth, Beth. Um, so, uh, uh, Dan, Beth, and, uh, Ellen are cleaning up leaves in the, in the backyard of the house, and, uh, um, Beth still has the, the scars and the bruises from the car accident that she um, mm. that she suffers at the same time as the uh, in the the kind of amazing roller coaster intercut scene, which uh, when we get to Critics <laughs> Corner was the breaking point for a, a certain <laughs> favorite spectacled critic of ours, um, <laughs> over whom I, I actually really like his Critics Corner this week. Um, uh, and uh, a police squad car pulls up, and uh, the detective that he goes to speak to, the kind of the detective who didn't seem to want to give a fuck about him uh, previously, comes with two other police officers, and they arrest Dan in front of his family, and they're cleaning up these leaves. This amazing um, uh, uh, visual, again, motif of their burning leaves in the garden, so there's smoke mm. billowing across the garden, there's really desaturated colors, and Beth runs after the police car, and then uh, immediately runs up to his... Um, his den upstairs and grabs his file effects. And that's when she finds the tape. And as she's listening to it, she's winding back and winding back and she's hearing, uh, um, Alex in voiceover say, I'll, I don't know what I'll do, Dan, I'll kill myself. I'll kill myself. And that's, uh, and then she rushes out of the house. And that's the last thing you see is, is, is the, an empty frame with Beth off screen yelling to Ellen to get ready. Cause they need to go. Um, as as a scene, I actually like it. Oh, and then uh, uh, you cut from there to a final shot of a lonely Alex sitting on the floor of her bathroom, picking up the knife and then slowly cutting her throat. It's a bit of a downbeater, which might might go to why audience members didn't really go for it. But um... so test, yeah, the the test audiences in 1987, who honestly, mm. I am worried about their fucking mental health. These people. Well, it sounds sick. like something Aronofsky would make in like or the Fincher. Last ten years. Yeah. To be honest, like like a wrestler or Black Swan, and because mm. I thought that's where we were going, I kind of liked having the 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 rug pulled from me a little bit and kept me guessing okay. on my toes that way. I did yeah. expect the Madden Butterfly ending. So maybe it's great to have that, that surprise element and that shock. As a succinct film, I think the Madden, just trying to answer the question. I think the Madden Butterfly thing makes sense, but I wonder why it didn't test well with audiences. Cause also, you know, like her being able to, survive underwater that long is kind of like, would she survive that long probably not and that becomes mm. quite horror at the end especially with the, with, with the white contact lenses too it's a bit yeah, yeah. i love the bubbles though the the, the air bubbles yeah that was good it's really yeah. cool and you know the, and again galley the setup and the payoff is the gun in the drawer and then it's it's beth it's not uh dan which i really like that as well Well, that's it that you've hit on it there that's what people wanted they wanted beth to wow, be the okay. one who right who took her out it wasn't clean enough 
uh, otherwise. For, for her to, to kill herself was like she was victorious in the end. Uh, audience which which makes best. sense to me because, you know, you said about the sympathy and where it lies. It, it does. It, I'm so conflicted throughout the film, which is mm. I think the um, – the, the, the car wax that I'm putting out is, is the, where the film excels is the conflict that I have throughout for both of them. I think the film though, uh, from a narrative point of view, it does in the last third kind of step aside that a lot more from the sympathy point of view and become a stalker slasher type, uh, thriller horror. Um, well, and Patrick, I think that's where the misnomer is with the film. So for people that seen it or even seen it in clip shows, will will absolutely be thinking well this film was was made from a male from a male perspective douglas gets away with it clean no you know he's absolved of all responsibility and and what has you know his infidelity and the wife stands by him and guns down uh, the other woman and that kind of feeds into those kind of reductive you know, catfight-ish sort of attitudes that I think the film probably for people that haven't seen it in a long time or haven't seen the alternate ending would probably have. And and I'm going to go with the opinion that, you know, watch, watch the film, watch the alternate ending. And it really does have a piece for 1987. Oh, I think it's like so 2021, like, mm. you know, like the Invisible Man, the the recent. Yeah, but but that's removed. If you take the ending away, if you take that Madam Butterfly, because to my mind, the bit that kind of undercuts it is the is the tape. So if I were to remake the film, I'd have the alternate ending, or no, the original ending that was then exercised, and I would have Douglas go down for the murder, and um, then cut because, to her Harry Carey. Yeah, because because in that way, not only are you conflicted, but he has faced some consequence. Yeah, but the yeah, fact that yeah. he's kind of sal- he's he's literally the salvation from Anna Archer is that Glenn Close has left this suicide note, and I, that's like to me that kind of goes no, it's tragic. Yes, that she's killed herself. Look what Dan has forced her down the line. But it's it's like the great villain trick, isn't it? It's the the Joker at the end of the Dark Knight. It's like, well, you might have caught me. But I've got another ace up my sleeve, which is Harvey. Um, obviously, that doesn't play out either, well either. But um, but you know what I mean. That, that's that's how I saw it. It's a great villain's trick, I guess. But um, she's not a villain, clearly. It's like you're saying. It's it's thematically. It's it's the right ending. It's the right ending narratively and thematically. It was what it was building up to. It deflates itself too quickly by immediately f- her finding the tape. I think. Um, uh, the scene plays out well, but it's it's a little muted. I don't feel like it was the fact that he was just arrested in his wow in them his, in the end. Yeah, the fact that he was just arrested in his yard doesn't really work out for me. I feel like that kind of thing has to happen in public. That has to be a public uh, uh, humiliation, probably in the office, probably with Herman Munster watching. I don't feel like you can, even though I know the film at that point has kind of narrowed down to being about the home and being about the family unit. It's, I can understand where it, it looked like they were maybe not quite as sure-footed as they wanted to be, but and that it was very muted and it was and it was it was tragic and thematically appropriate and it makes the film psychologically richer and smarter, whereas the new ending makes it dumber. But the new ending is the thing that made this film the third highest-grossing film of 1987, and it's the thing people remember. It's Plus, also, you, you you wouldn't get that moment Matt spoke about earlier with the, with the knife digging into the thigh and all that really yeah. unsettling some great kind of stuff. stuff. Uh, it's uh, the, really the fact great that stuff. She infiltrates the family home again is a, a terrifying thing. There's a, uh, Ellen is sleeping in the next room. 
Uh, it all takes place in the bathroom with the steam. And there's that great, yeah. um, we talked about the bingo. You have to have a mirror jump scare yeah. uh, at, at some point. And this one has the, the greatest one. And the um, kettle boiling, all the kind Yeah, of, all that stuff. All... And the, the water seeping through, the bath overflowing. Uh, the fact that, that she, she kills her as well, shot through the heart, heartbroken. Um, you know, there's something about the eighties as well and gunshots and, and squibs that this and, uh, the Harrison Ford film witness have really good blood colors and, and blood squibs. And it's the eighties so is really violent, good right? Like it's, it's, really oh, it's, it's, it is brutal that, um, mm-hmm. you, cause you think about the scene before when Douglas, so if we stick with, um, the setup to that fight, uh, the, the final, final scene. Hmm. D- Douglas has literally gone like insane. Like when he attacks her in the apartment yep. for that briefest of moments, he is actually yeah. unhinged. No, no dialogue as well. Which is, no no dialogue. It's fucking great. They are both, I mean, they're both actors at the top of their game and they are really going for it and you feel it. It's visceral. Then Glenn Close in the alternate ending that becomes the crowd pleaser is, I mean, she could have been Jason Voorhees. She's fucking great. And, and, and I think that's what it is, right? We will, we'll talk about audiences wanting that bloodlust, but she, I think she's so good that that's why they wanted her down. They were like, no, she's so great in the role that they wanted to see her get punished, which is obviously more revealing of audience members than probably exactly. we would was wish. There any, but... Was there any audience feedback that wanted her to be victorious though? Because, to, to again to go back on no okay fine she's just from, from they wanted her to be punished and and at yeah. the hands oh, wow. of, uh, of of an archer the the words uh, kill the words kill the bitch were written on one of <laughs> on more than one of the test cards <laughs> which is uh, outrageous and very indicative of the of the times I think Glenn Close talks about that the audience's need for catharsis that's the most important thing she took two weeks where she refused to reshoot it because she based the whole character on 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 what she'd done before and she was going to take herself out and with with the suicide at the end and that had informed every decision she'd made so it's a long a long two weeks and i I do feel like she was betrayed and forced into that decision but she said that she did it for michael douglas she did it for the producers that had, had faith in her and and they and also the studio said take one and a half million or whatever it was, go and shoot the ending, reshoot the ending. If it doesn't work, just use the Madame Butterfly one. It's okay. You can revert back to it. But Glenn Close talked about, uh, it's this ancient Greek thing where uh, you have order and then order is disrupted and then blood is shed and then order is restored. And that's how you tell uh, a, a cathartic story that pleases an audience. And it didn't quite have that before although she died she didn't die in a violent way at the hands of of, of the woman that had been wronged uh the, the woman who'd done nothing wrong the thing that always intrigued me and even you know i was too small to be thinking in such uh high lofty ways but like to my mind like hollywood is kind of mecca for liberal left-leaning views and conscientious thinking how weird that this film is so conservative in its values. It's like no one fucks with the nuclear family. And the fact the audience members wanted that, like, cause that's what to me, that's the appeal of the film is that yes, it's man and wife, but it could be it's partner and partner. It doesn't really matter about gender. Infidelity is infidelity. It could happen to anybody, but for, for you know, for whatever reason, it's primal, isn't it? Like if somebody invades your home, 
you know, especially in America, you have the right to take them out. And and that kind of translates. The point that they knew that it was going to be satisfying for an audience is when uh, Alex calls the family home and uh, Beth Gallagher talks to her on the phone. She says, you come near my family. <laughs> And I'll kill you. You know, that, that hero line and the audience. I, freaked I didn't realize out, she apparently. became Brian Mills. <laughs> <laughs> the audience freaked out there and the producers knew that that's the, the avenue that they needed to go down to wow, give, give okay. them a satisfying ending. And she, she needed to die at the hands of Beth. The crowd pleasing, simplistic Jason Voorhees ending. What this does is it makes all of this just so much more horrifying that essentially Michael Douglas is trying to drown a pregnant woman, pregnant with his child in a yeah. bathtub. And I think if it weren't for the fact that she becomes essentially a supernatural slasher killer, she basically becomes a creature. Like you were saying, Matt, with the white contacts, it's like she passes beyond being just a damaged woman and she has to become like a A supernatural being in order for audiences to be able to, to wipe that, to, to neuralize that out of their minds. Cause you can't remove the pregnancy Mm. subplot because it's so important thematically Mm -hmm. yeah it's also so important thematically in the madam butterfly sense which is you know you have the um the 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 woman who has the child and then uh the unrejected um so it's but when you're talking about conservatism in um in plotting i think it it all comes down to this kind of this retrofitting to turning it into a more conventional thriller which is I, i watch these videos by this guy mike hill he's like a designer he's a few videos on youtube not many um, but they're, they're really informative and interesting about the idea of blockbuster filmmaking and the way blockbuster filmmaking is constructed out of a very conservative need to create and maintain stable family units. And the two examples, three examples he uses mostly are Aliens, Terminator 2 and Jurassic Park. And he says that mm-hmm. under the surface yeah. of them being about uh, uh, intergalactic space monsters or about robots from the future or about dinosaurs in a genetically created park. What they actually are is about characters forming a base, a, a simple, uh, like a um, the the archetypal uh, man woman child uh, relationship. And once all of the pieces fall into place, what you're left with is that that uh, that kind mm-hmm. of stable family unit is the status quo. And mm-hmm. so possibly on a on a kind of a subconscious level, the the trickier plotting, the more kind of operatic, tragic plotting of the original ending, didn't gut punch the audience in the way they wanted to, and they could. The only way they could articulate it is with pure bloodlust, because they knew yeah. that what they wanted to see was what happened at the end, which is it zooms in on a framed family photograph of the three of them yeah, yep. right together, and we rush to that ending as well. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and the devil, the modern equivalent. The Fast and the Furious films. It's about family. Well, That's exactly. it. Doesn't matter. You could be having cars driving around, people coming back from the dead, but at the end, the heart, it's all about family. Obviously, it's slightly different than a nuclear family, but it's, you know, it's about love and family. So yeah, I totally checked. And, and interestingly, for all that Danielle's sympathies were with Alex, at the end, she wanted a shot dead. She was like, I prefer that ending. Whoa. It's like, she, she was. She didn't say she wanted a shot dead. That's harsh. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm got to kill the bitch. <laughs> but, um, she was. Um, no, she was just like no. There's. She was like that's just that didn't. She even said like that doesn't feel like an ending. I was like, well, yeah, because you know you don't bookend your story with something that feels like it's got another 
two or three chapters to go, like what's happened in court. As you say, they don't, mm. they don't dramatize that ending. And it reminded me a little bit of, um, Promising Young Woman, which uh, I watched recently where the shaming is publicly done. Spoilers. Sorry, team. Um, where the, the arrests that happen in that film. So I'm not quite spoiling. Oh, I've it, not seen it. Kind of. Oh, sorry. It happens in a public event. And they are publicly shamed. Oh, that's what I was saying about the, the ending just happening in the, in the garden and, and that. Yeah. His life right. needs to have been destroyed. His professional, his personal, it all needs to go. You need that Herman monster shaking his head and walking away. <laughs> uh, shall we take a trip to, uh, critics? Yeah. To follow on from. Yes, please. Yes, please. Let's hear, right. let's hear what they've got to say. Devlin, do you want to do Ebert this time? Uh, sure. Uh, well, Ebert, an, an, an impression uh, of him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I could actually. I'll, I'll I do There's a monster. There's a monster in the house. <laughs> um, uh, Roger Ebert, uh, in his Chicago Sun Times review, which is still available on his website, uh, I was really, I was, I was on board with what he said, which is that he said that there is quality work top to bottom, and he says this is a tremendous film. It's, uh, uh, it has real psychological depth, and it really advances its story via the way that the people interact with each other, not via outside tricks. And he said, the moment that I start seeing that woman driving down the street, manically driving into cars, <laughs> I don't understand where this has come from. This film has mm. suddenly become this like roller coaster ride, literally and metaphorically. And he said, that's the point that it loses me. And up until this point, I was thinking this is prestigious Oscar material. And then the final third collapsed. It's like he said, that it's like they lost their nerve. No, Roger. No, I disagree. Roger is, he's forgetting the source material. This should be a pulpy, trashy bit of human drama. Lines, lines has elevated it to such a level that he has forgotten what sandbox he's playing in, which is a thriller. An, an erotic one. He was very angry on at the movies. It's in the playlist mm. if you want to watch it, but I heard they had to give him an extra egg McMuffin to calm him down. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was, it was uh, hot on the heels of uh, Jagged Edge that we mentioned earlier. Between the two of them, they criticized a lot of these types of thrillers. Um, Siskel said that Fatal Attraction was subtler than something like Jagged Edge, which isn't true at all. Uh, he also managed to say the word monster again. Uh, I don't yeah, know he how did. he does it. Um, and I'm not sure if they referenced uh, Play Misty for me or whether that was someone else, but they they, they did equate it, I think, to, to some other uh, things that had come before. But yeah, he, he described them as, as losing their nerve and was uh, apoplectic. Isn't it interesting that, that, um, that uh, Ebert just instinctively thought they'd copped out but this is before everyone knew everything about productions. And now everyone knows when they reshoot a film, because it's all over fucking Twitter and the Hollywood reporter on it. And they, they you even know how much money they spend on the endings. And now retrospectively we do, but at the time they wouldn't. And I will say that that is better. I, because otherwise you will just second guess every creative decision. If like you're saying that, if you know that everything's just a building block that you can create something and then decide the actual climax of it isn't what you want to do anymore. And like, I can understand, like you said, Glenn Close feeling, um, sold out. Of course you did. Yeah. But also, Gally, like we spoke about, you said you'd protect Adrian Lyon as an auteur. But if he really was here, wouldn't he protect his ending? No, he wanted to. He, he fought hard as well. He didn't want, but they'd, they'd offered him, I think Matt said earlier, they'd offered him 
one and a half million to shoot Fuck. the alternate ending. Right. And if he didn't like, you, 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 didn't are, you are it. not going to, you know, you're not going to turn that down. Like, I mean, it's not just the financial, but it's also if he does that, digs his heels in, does he make another film again in the in in the industry? Probably not. You know, that that's the kind of thing. And and as much as Glenn Close felt betrayed in a character. Look what it did for a career. Like she, uh, don't get me wrong, an amazing act- actress. There's no way that she would have never made a film again. But there's also probably a likelihood that I wouldn't put her up against Meryl Streep uh, as far as that kind of uh, that kind of actor that can, you know, really brings a lot of star wattage because she does. You know, I think about her in uh, in 101 Dalmatians, and that is an iconic role that she never would have got. She hadn't have done Fatal Attraction, in my opinion. It's my opinion, but she wouldn't have the longevity that she got. I don't think this film. I still now, if you tell me what is the what is the quintessential Glenn Close performance, it's it's this film. It's Fatal Attraction. No, I don't, you know she's made loads, but this is the one, right? I, I, unless you can yeah. point another one. Or Crooked House a few years ago when I worked with her. Excellent. Oh, yeah, very good. <laughs> Can we shout out um, Adrian Lyne a little bit more? Um, some of us recently watched um, Flashdance, um, which isn't quite yes. an erotic thriller, but it's a fascinating film that we should really do. Oh, we're going to um, do it. That's a bargain bin, Matt, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Flashdance. Yeah. Um, uh, nine and a half it's weeks. chaos, isn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Fatal Attraction, Indecent Proposal, his remake of Lolita, mm. and and then Unfaithful, Um where where Diane Lane becomes the cheater, and it's a, a very strong mm. film. The final great, well, not quite great because it isn't actually that good, but the final one of these, <laughs> I think, before the reclamation project begins, which I signed up for about five years ago, which is bring them back. It's the flip side to this, isn't it? It's the the other side of the coin where uh, Diane Lane is the cheater, and and I would consider that to be the final true erotic thriller. Um, there's some interesting stuff with Adrian Lyne. Um, the, the top four names that I came up with that are kind of synonymous with the genre were De Palma, Adrian Lyne, uh, Joe Estahas, and Michael Douglas. They're the ones who mm-hmm. all have maybe three films in, in the 30 that I picked out. The, the, the Douglas trilogy of Basic Instinct, Fatal Attraction, and Disclosure is a big one. Uh, Joe Estahas, Jagged Edge, Basic Instinct, Sliver, and Showgirls. Um, you know, uh, Adrian Lyne is like a lunatic in the best way. Like he, he kind of looks like Wurzel Gummidge. Do you remember Wurzel Gummidge? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, he describes, <laughs> he describes himself as a demented cheerleader and he, he calls things out during the takes when he likes them and he says things like hotter, hotter. And, uh, Glenn Close, said that he even said at one point that gave me a boner which was one of his uh directorial uh quotes uh he doesn't really do prep he approves things and then changes his mind on the morning of the shoot like the color of one of the one of the cars uh he said uh he'd approved the car and then it was blue when it showed up and he didn't want it to be blue galley touched on something earlier about um or maybe it was just in the notes about um the, the monochromatic yeah, there's a Design. black and white. Yeah, there's a black and white motif. It's not right, subtle yeah. at all that runs through the entire film. And they, the characters again, it's all kind of visual grammar. But the characters keep switching from white to black and back and forth. And Glenn Close, interestingly, even in her most villainous turn at the end, 
is in a what almost looks like a wedding dress in white as as a is a kind of killer bride um and and douglas you know has got the deadly black turtleneck when he's playing uh bowling <laughs> which is you know obviously yeah. a villain turn well i i assume he wanted every color to mean something that's why he kind of tried to strip the color out a lot but um the editors said that line shot close to a million feet um which is like magnolia apocalypse now territory uh and also he would print 100% of his takes even though he's only budgeted to print 75% of them and the producers would get mad with him they said someone coughed in that take we can't use it why did you print it and they'd get mad at him about that uh a couple of things on the visuals um he didn't use any sets really the only set that i saw was like the the, the water tank for the reshoot which looked like it could have been on set maybe, but the rest of it was real New York City apartments, enclosed spaces, and that lent to the the, the realism of the film. And also we talk about uh, the locales a lot on these erotic thrillers, if it's the sweltering heat of the bayou or San Francisco or whatever it is. This one's like a rainy New York City um, vibe, and that's that's sexy in its own way. And one last thing that I have to sing his praises for is this kind of, I've called it smoke signals. It's like, uh, De- De- Devlin touched on it before. There's a smoky theme throughout. And I think it's got something I-, I mentioned before about the match and him getting his fingers burned. And for me, it's like Alex is this smoky, uh, the, the image of smoke is kind of Alex is always present in every scene. So when he does the walk of shame, he's in a smoky New York City wide shot there's the smoke from herman munster's pipe uh <laughs> big clumpy one uh, and, uh <laughs> she's uh smoking in bed um there's the smoke and the rain outside when he comforts her after she cuts her wrists uh smoke rises from the acid on the car when he gets the replacement car the smoke is filling the frame there's the bunny boiling there's the taps and the steam uh and then in the original ending dev said it before that they're they're burning the leaves i i think in the garden and uh, there's a smoky presence in the atmosphere or all, all the time and i think that's a really interesting visual yeah. theme that he doesn't have that amazing boy. like desaturated 70s horror look to it you know that oh it really does again, yeah it looks like the omen now again yeah 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 totally. uh, it really does yeah, just where where alex lives as well um just a little something that's really silly for me because uh, like a meat packing district that's very small yeah, yeah, yeah. which uh and meat packing because he literally packs his meat in her um and he reminded me of like a red light district <laughs> well i i just wanted to ask one thing matt because obviously you very graciously uh created a erotic thriller bingo board which we now play against and to be honest with you i bingo. i, I put up- Yep, we did, did very much so. Um, I, I actually put it up against any film I watch. I watched, uh, what did I watch the other day? I think it was, uh, Coppola's Jack and I was trying to play it. It doesn't work for every film. Are you Troy Duffy? Are you reading the, the script? Yeah. Well, that was it. Yeah, like, you can just sat there in his dungarees. When I was, uh, when I was listening, when I was editing Boondock Saints, I was like, you know what? I haven't watched Jack in a long time. I wonder if it is just like Boondock Saints. It isn't. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I can understand why Troy decided, you know, went a bit off piste. That's for sure. Um, yeah, but no, I... um, cause one of the things that, that, you know, Patrick mentioned earlier in the episode is that the sex is like done in the first 20 minutes. So if you come in for the, if you come into Fatal Attraction because you want to get a, a little bit hot under the collar, um, you know, 30 minutes in and you may as well go and check out the next dirty flick next door. 
because you're not going to get mm. it. But when you do get it, oh my goodness me! I mean that 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 sink. That can anyone explain to me what the thinking is between rubbing tap water into your face? Because ah, oh, just using the environment around them. Well, to my mind, that would then open up the pores and the salt that's naturally uh, in the skin. <laughs> and it would probably blind me because I'd be like, ah, oh, no, I've got like it, it salt was originally, residue in my eyeballs. It was originally just a normal bedroom scene and they'd spent hours dressing the, the bedroom. And then Adrian Lyon and the DOP were hanging out in the kitchen and like, what's going on here? And then it, he said, does the, the tap work? And why doesn't the water come out faster? <laughs> And he started complaining and then uh, they eventually staged the whole scene there. But I guess hydration, Gally, is the only answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got Very chocolate important. mousse all over the sheets. <laughs> it's on the balance. I did think we'd get like a a contrasting sex scene with his wife. You know, like a... Ah, I wondered about that. Like thing, in uh, something like than... Body of Evidence. The, yeah. Something like yeah. Body of Evidence you have Willem Dafoe and uh, Julianne Moore. You see them together. Mm-hmm. So when he when he cheats, you've got the the other side of it. But yeah. there's nothing here, is there? We're, we're, no, I, I really thought there would be. Um, and then we have uh, elevator fellatio as well. That's a great scene. It's staged really well. It's staged really well. It's great. But can we please not get past the fact that they've been salsa dancing and his his lower regions will stink. <laughs> it's, one of, it's one of those movie things that I can't get past. Which is <laughs> if I if I place this in reality. That has got to be gross for Glenn to do that. Yeah. Is it? Well, and another... Shouldn't actually suck him off, Gally. <laughs> There's a cool visual thing there too, where he's like heading straight to hell. It's like they get in the angel heart oh, lift, yeah. and he's in the he's in the prison, and he, he like the rabbit is in the cage as well, and 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 the rabbit dies. He's in he's in the lift, and she's in the lift, and she ends up dying too. He's in this cage. He's like he's in a prison with her, um, and that's actually quite sexy that one is as, yeah yeah you know. it's great it's really again i mean we're laughing because you know i think adrian lyon even said that sex scenes inherently in 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 movies uh unless it's like you know a, james cameron a, a, a dirty a blue a blue <laughs> film they tend to be funny like because they are because you you have a nervous laugh which is i'm in a cinema with a hundred other people and i'm watching uh-huh. this film you're naturally gonna be like uh, of course i don't do it like that um, <laughs> But, but so he, so he, uh, so he, so he lent into it, didn't he? And, and one of the things that you see is Douglas goes straight for the bitty, like in that elevator. He's like, nom, 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 It's outrageous. On the uh, bingo board, I think it ticked it, lots of boxes, but it only got two lines. I wasn't sure how, how to set up the rows, but it scored two lines. The two lines were, uh, uh, dead pet, uh, mirror scare, Old tech, bad outfit, and public sex. That's a definite line there. And then I think it scored another one somewhere. I think it was mirror scare, boobs, envy, lingerie. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and shower in a in a yeah. lingerie. And and bit. Michael Douglas takes a shower. So I, that's another row, I think. But it it ticked quite a few boxes there. Oh right. Well, I think team we have we have. We've absolutely gone through Fatal Attraction without really talking about a lot of the scenes. So, you know, ideal for our listeners. Um, so I guess it's, it's up to me now to ask the final questions, which is, and Devlin, I'll start with you. So, you know, um, would you recommend Fatal Attraction to our listeners and any final thoughts? Um, I do recommend it. 
as uh, I think probably a lot of people might be in the same situation I am, which is that they are aware of this film and they are aware of the culture that surrounds it. And they've probably seen most of the, the big hitting scenes uh, at one point or another, either parodied or taken out of context and shown. But the film itself is very different, uh, more complex, uh, fascinating, was a genuinely gripping thriller. I, I had no points at which my attention lagged. So it's it's tremendously well paced, uh, impeccably acted by people, like you said, at the top of their game. Uh, it's a real kind of high point of that era of grown-up Hollywood cinema with, you know, adults in the room making really good pictures. With the caveat that I do kind of... I'm torn in that I, I do agree with Roger Ebert, which is that they they had a more psychologically rich, more interesting, more emotion, more um, artistically uh, cohesive film, which they uh, abandoned. And by abandoning it, they, uh, they kind of, they, they, they bought it the level of, of success and pop culture notoriety that it now has without that scene. This film is not, that popular it's going to be one of these underrated it's, it'll be like me asking matt whether he's ever seen jagged or asking any of you if you've ever seen jagged right, edge right. and only one of the four of mm-hmm. us having seen it it would mm-hmm. become one yep. of these uh it's more of a footnote whereas this is this is a a, a landmark this is like a, a a real landmark probably in terms of the the erotic thriller lineage the imitators of this were myriad it sets such a template going forward and the cheaper and shoddier and nastier ones that followed use this template of the crazed woman scorned color um, of it's night. legacy yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's legacy is mixed of course because the things that it's playing on are inherently misogynistic and um damaging towards the attitudes towards people with mental health problems and we talk a lot about the fact that films an individual film can be picked apart for single individual uh, uh, points at which they were being insensitive or points at which they were mistreating characters or mistreating real life problems um but the problems really come in when it becomes a trope and then when the trope informs the wider public so the film in and of itself can't really be blamed for the sins of a general public who apparently had a great deal of bloodlust towards this character anyway so it's a strange my it's a strange one because it, it really is the creators wanted to make something more nuanced and the people demanded otherwise and they rewarded it handsomely financially so i don't i i remain uh um morally torn by it and i think that just makes it more fascinating i really do think it's a it's a really interesting film to dig down i don't think it's one that i would ever uh, come to a conclusion on whether it's you know a net positive or a net negative I think there will be other people who would have a different opinion and that's completely uh, founded and, and reasonable. And I'm sure there would be uh, um, plenty of, of uh, articles, probably quite scholarly articles, who have dug into this kind of stuff. And I would probably recommend looking some of those up. But what's fascinating is that the film itself is clearly powerful enough to be taken that seriously. If the film was rubbish, you wouldn't have people wanting to to invest that level of intellectual thought to it. So um yeah recommend uh and it makes for a fascinating uh discussion so yeah thanks very much for that um patrick as the other person who's come to the film 
pretty fresh. Uh, what are your final thoughts on it? Well, firstly, well, well said, Devlin. Um, I, I take a lot from what you just said there, and I think um, I'll try and be brief here because I, I echo nearly everything you said. It, it's such an interesting film because of that conflict throughout the whole, throughout my um, moral take on it, which the thing, one of the main things I took away from it is like, I, I, I'm assuming like Alex is kind of like one of perceived as one of Hollywood's greatest bad guys in some lists or things like that. Or in fact, throughout it could be perceived as Dan is the actual like true bad guy here. And I really like, I really liked that throughout. Um, Matt asked me where my sympathy lay and I'm so torn throughout the whole film. And I think it's, that's a kind of, I was taken aback by how solid and how brilliantly directed and produced this film is because it's a very very well made film um i do stand by what i said earlier that the first two thirds feel a little bit different to the final third and we get down to that uh, wow them in the end element and i wasn't aware of the alternative ending but that was fully what i was expecting and there could have been a deep richer finale there from a psychological point of view and from an artistic point of view but I don't really fully begrudge it because I was wowed in the end and I did really enjoy the ending. And I think in, mo- in a lot of parts, it's quite suitable. And yeah, I was very impressed watching it the other day and I, I'm, it's a shame I hadn't watched it before, but um, I'm really glad to, to have done so now. And this, this is a really good chat, chaps. Thank you. Um, Matt. Over to you, please. Before the conclusion, uh, if you freeze the frame on Michael Douglas's stunt double during the scene where he chokes her in the apartment, he looks a bit like Jerry Seinfeld, and I found that very funny. <laughs> uh, so if you have time. Um, I, I don't have much left to say without repeating myself. So uh, along with basic instinct, like to me, this is the one. This is the most iconic cool. erotic thriller um, I think it's really adept at lulling us into a false sense of security and it moves very well and it has logical beats and plot points and character behavior and it propels itself along very forcefully for two hours. Didn't feel like two hours. It really flew by for me. Um, if I were trying to articulate the importance of script and direction, this would be a really good example of that to film students and and people who are interested in directing and writing Uh, it's a real house of cards i think everything in it is essential and props up the plot uh the ending is debatable uh i'm leaning towards ebert and dev um it's it's hard to rail against something that has become such a massive success though and it's the way it is because the audience in that era demanded it uh, and it's a dangerous approach and strategy when it comes to filmmaking to, to do what the test audience tells you. But here, I think it's perhaps appropriate. Um, uh, and I do feel for Glenn Close. Um, not Alex, the character necessarily, but Glenn Close as far as her approach and her method. Um, it, it's, as Gally was saying, uh, along with maybe Cruella Deville, this is the performance that she's going to be remembered for. And she's terrific in it. Uh, on rewatch, when we meet her, knowing the fate of the characters in the movie, we can enjoy Fatal Attraction on many levels because we know what's coming. It's a really enjoyable rewatch. Um, it's very intricate and smart. And I, I understand the frustration of Ebert 
who didn't care for the last 30 minutes and felt it compromised that build and the integrity of the original version. Uh, the bunny boiler thing has become a reference point that everyone knows, regardless of whether they've seen the film or not. It's in our vocabulary now because of this. Uh, it ticked a few bingo lines, a lot of boxes. So it's a high recommend from me. It's a film that's not going to be ignored even in 2021. Uh, I'll pass over to Gally then, last. Uh, okay, well, this is comfortably one of the easiest films to recommend for me today on the show. I would recommend all listeners, if they've not seen it, or if they haven't seen it in a long, long time, to watch it with a loved one or somebody that you've got a really strong relationship with. Because I think it's a great talking point film. Like you, you know, the conflict, it's, you, you've heard it in ourselves when we're talking about the, the characterizations, the decisions some of these characters make. Um, this is not just like a slab of trashy uh, sleaze. Like it really isn't. You know, it might have Adrian Lyon's name against it, but this is properly elevated a la... Uh, Wrigley Scott's Alien uh, to my <laughs> mind honestly it really is it's, it, I'm going to give it that much praise I think it's so well crafted and so skillfully made that that is the reason why Roger needed an extra egg McMuffin and Devlin is still not quite there because he, you obviously you know he he's he's played a trick which is you think you're you you know the sandbox you're in and by the third act you feel betrayed that you are that you're playing in that sandbox. Well, that's because you thought you were watching one type of film, and and then they they give you the you know they give you that finality that that big boom at the end. You know, the shark grabbed the gas bottle and Roy shot it. So mm. um, yeah, I, to my mind, there's loads of social normative behaviors at play, archetypes being shoved in your face, and it challenges all of that, and it challenges your perspective and what you think you would do. And that's the, that's the key line for me is like the king of the premise. He understands at the core what the premise is all about and what the audience will, will, will derive from it. And, and this film knocks it out of the park. So yeah, absolutely freaking loved it. Going to probably watch it next week if <laughs> we weren't doing another film for the show. So there you go. Um, where, where can our listeners, uh, where can they find this one team? Our American friends uh, can uh, stream it on, sorry, on DirecTV, Fubo, Showtime. And uh, in England, I think it's on Sky Cinema and Sky. It currently. is. Which uh, means it's on now TV because they're connected. Yeah. You might need to, you might need to hurry though. I, I think it's running. It's, it's rapidly running out. So here's the question then. Where, where can I watch the alternative ending? Oh, you can get it on YouTube. YouTube. We'll, we'll put it and on our playlist. What. Yeah, we'll put yes. it on our playlist. Yeah, with an Absolutely. introduction by Adrian Line. Did you like the way Indeed. I segued in a plug there for him? So. Beautiful, very good. I <laughs> uh, love it, love it. On the YouTube playlist that Matt puts together for our tremendous blog at rewindmoviecast.com. <laughs> <laughs> wow, very nice. Uh, next coming up for for you listeners, we've got Donnie Darko, which is a, a throwback that I've chosen. We've got Devlin's Choice as a throwback, so please all. Be worried. Um, and then we've got another, <laughs> we got, no, I'm only joking. All oh, the knives are out, aren't they? Literally. Um, so another special guest episode coming up with Lev, um, who we'll introduce when he, when he gets around to it. And, uh, and, and we've also got the slimy edition of the alien series, Alien Resurrection. <laughs> yeah. So, um, plenty to look forward to. Um, <laughs> if you enjoy the show, please like, share, subscribe, wherever you listen. And if you want to help, 
the show, reach more people, tell your friends, write them a letter. We don't mind how you do it. But also, could you pen <laughs> a wee... P.O. Box. Just record it. Wanted. Record it on a C90 cassette tape and slip it into their cars. <laughs> yeah. You know, say that you feel us and you taste us. Um, no. Also, if you could, you know, pen a wee review on iTunes, it really does help. And we really appreciate your support. Right. Well, team, should we say our goodbyes? Bring the dog. I love animals. It's Gally in Glasgow <laughs> signing out. Stay safe, everyone. Uh, I'm just going to go tend to the stew that's on the hob. It's Devlin in London. It's his bed. I'm afraid he's going to have to lie in it. It's Patrick in Cardiff. I'm scared, Jimmy. It's Matt in South Korea. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.